0: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. He spoke with confidence and grace. The people he spoke to at the party all seemed to engage him, <clears throat> and their eyes lightened as he spoke and listened to them. Jack was a young man in his mid-twenties, handsome, fit, educated. <clears throat> he had been invited by a co-worker, to a gathering at his house, which turned out to be upper crust, wealthy, erudite, sophisticated, not something the young man was used to. And it was a large gathering, 30 to 40 people. But to his surprise, Jack was a flowing, engaging person. Then he met her, a beautiful woman about his age, His night was going so well, could it be also that he was about to meet the woman of his dreams? They talked and they laughed for a while, and then it hit him. He didn't know if it was a smell or a word or what had sparked it, but it was a memory of his past. It was the memory of his past. The abuse that had been heaped upon him by his father. We'll leave the details aside. And in fact, the actual detail of the abuse didn't matter at the time. What mattered was that in one second, <coughs> excuse me, Jack went from strong, smart, confident to a scared little boy. He went from the man who could take this young woman's hand and court her and marry her to a, the frail, scared lad who could only desire to run away. Jack lost the opportunity of a lifetime to a memory. Have memories of your past, abuse from another, failure in sin, sins of your own, that in the moment, def- you have allowed in any moment to you. Memories that come from somewhere. No, no telling where they come from or what sparks them. But they come. And they cause you to define yourself by your past, by your failures, by your slavery. And you shrink to a miserable, desperate pulp of a thing. It turns out that this is actually common to us all. To everybody I've talked to about this, they all agree that it happens. And the gift of Christ changes this. He's not going to tell us to forget your memories. This we've misinterpreted, I think, passages you know, where it says leave the past behind or forget what lies behind is in some way that we can actually forget our past when, in fact, the history, uh, the Bible records the history of Israel. Uh, Paul, before he writes that statement, records the history of his own life. He writes it down. He's not forgetting it, but he's teaching us how to deal with it. God is also teaching us how to deal with it. Because our sins and our failures of the past we can allow to define us and ruin our present. We will see in the first few chapters here of Matthew that the Lord gives us the not only the means of escape but the means of victory over all things that we have been but now are. <clears throat> Let's open up in prayer and thank God for opportunity that we have to, be together, to hear his word, to be enlightened by this marvelous gospel. Um, as we look into the gospel, we're as I've, I've come to know here that uh, through the gospel we're going to see uh, big picture things. This is, this is about the life of Christ, which is always a big picture uh, of particular things in our lives, but this is looking at in terms of a life, not so much details but actual um, big picture things. So as we pray, let's ask God to reveal to us the picture that he wants us to see. And so with that, let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you that you and you alone have provided the means by which we can see this life that you have blessed us with. This comes through our Lord Jesus Christ who, born into this world in the most spectacular of ways, <coughs> leads, <coughs> leads us in his life. Uh, he becomes the life that provides for us life. He becomes the life to be followed. He becomes the life of all mankind through him and him alone is their life we thank you Father that through your word that we can see who and who he is and who you are as you have revealed to us through your spirit and we ask father that in your in his name that we all will be enlightened in what we will see and we ask this in Christ's name amen <clears throat> I love this frog in my throat it always happens when I start talking so Uh, Just in terms of announcements, uh, there'll be no classes the week of Christmas. Christmas Eve is a Sunday, so we'll be together then. Uh, No classes that following week, and we won't have a class on New Year's Eve, which is the following Sunday. Um, And that'll be posted on the website, and I'll remind you again as we get closer. Uh, This week we're having a Bible study on Wednesday. Uh, That's at 4.30. We're looking into the temptations of Christ in Matthew Four and Mark four. If you want to join us, four thirty on Wednesday, um, and uh, also on Mondays is Zoom class. Is now on Mondays at four o'clock, which is tomorrow. I generally forget um, because I'm still getting used to it, but somebody reminds me, so I'm always there. <coughs> all right, let's all rise, please. All right, we'll start in Matthew 1. And today is about memory. Um, and God's going to bring up through Matthew an awful memory. It's terrible. Uh, imagine, you know, my, the only thing I can think of and I've only seen in movies is, um, you know, say you're a mother and your children are being taken away by the Nazis onto cattle cars and carted off to Auschwitz. And you're never going to see them again. Um, this is what happens to Israel. And, um, and the, the prophecy of it, they were warned, it happened, and Matthew brings it up. Brings it up in the birth narrative of Jesus Christ. And, of course, something happens here that, you know, the Holy Spirit leads Matthew to see um, the fact that Herod, this evil, awful man, who is really no different, I mean, he's slightly different, everybody's different, but he's really no different than Pharaoh in Egypt who wants to kill the children of Israel. He's no different than really any ruler, tyrant, someone who wants to protect power? Because all they want to do in life is win, and win over others. It's all they want to do. They just want to win, to be better, to be powerful, to win everything. And you know, the people that we read about in history that do this are the kings. I mean, one of my uh, one of my uh, uh, historians that I admire quite a bit. His name's Eugen Weber. He's he's long gone now, but. Uh, <clears throat> he used to say that if cats wrote history, it, history would be about cats. You know, so the people who wrote history were the people who were hired by kings. They were hired by, um, you know, so a, a lot of people say, well, you know, uh, Matthew's account of the murder of the children in Bethlehem is not recorded by any other historian, and that's true. But your response, if anybody brings that up to you, your response is, okay, do you know the other historians at the time who would be writing about that time, in that place? I mean, how many historians are running around in 4 BC, or even 100 years after? Not many. And the ones who do, which there are, Josephus, Tacitus, um, and, and there's another whose name escapes me, but who, who do they work for? Because you can't just get a job as a historian at the local university in 100, B, in 100 AD. You can't. You have to be, you're working for Rome. And if you're working, the, the boss doesn't want you to write what you write. Again, the people who write history write about what they see, the, the rich people, the wealthy, the powerful And Herod is rich, wealthy, and powerful, but he's no different than anybody who is not rich, wealthy, or powerful, but does not know the Lord or life, and has to deal with themselves and their past and their present And their failures and their flaws and their dreams and desires that don't come to fruition. And they have to deal with it somehow. And we see how Herod deals with it. We'll see that this morning. But everybody does this except for the believer. The believer deals and can, if he he or she so chooses, deal with. The very same past that we all have, but in a much different manner. And actually finds not just dealing with it, but embracing it. It's embraced. What's the number one celebration that Jews have every year? It's Passover, isn't it? What is Passover about? It's about slavery. But it's about freedom from slavery. They sacrifice an animal. It's to bring back a memory. Right? We're not to forget it. We're to conquer it, embrace it. In Matthew 1 and 2, there are five references. These are not actual prophecies. They're made by prophets. But the first one kind is a prophecy, we would say. So look at Matthew one twenty two. In Matthew 1 and 2, there are five of them. And this is what's going to guide us today. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Behold the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which translated means God with us. So this is Matthew 714 sorry Isaiah 714 the virgin will be with child and will call him God with us. So this is the birth of our Lord And this is definitely a prophecy. Isaiah says this is coming. But when he says this, he's saying it to a king of Israel, or a king of Judah, Ahaz. And in the context of the prophecy, Ahaz is supposed to see this. And we never find out who this virgin is, or young maiden, as it can be translated. In the context of Isaiah... It's a historical fact that somebody whom we don't know had a child, which would have been a a no-duh to Ahaz. He would have been like, so, so what? But this becomes fulfilled by Christ. It's a historical event in Israel that was assigned to a king. But yet, later on, when it becomes fulfilled, as Matthew points it out, we all say, well, there it is. It's fulfilled in Christ. But that's not the only one. These things are historical. Look at Matthew 2, 5. This is the second one. The Magi ask, where is, he, where is the king of the Jews? Where is he, the one who was born king of the Jews? And the prophets, uh, not the prophets, sorry, the chief priests and scribes answer, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Here's the second prophecy. So one is going to come forth in Bethlehem. He'll be a ruler, and marvelously, he'll be a shepherd, right? Not a tyrant. Herod, Pharaoh. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, anybody, anybody in the Bible or late, whoever's a tyrant today, are they shepherding their people? A Shepherd is a word that means I not only lead, but I provide, I protect. I make better. I make you healthy. I make you better. How many leaders are doing that? In all of history, how many leaders have done it? A handful. You probably count them on one hand. Sadly. But that's fulfilled, as we see. So Jesus is born. That's his birth. But here we see in this prophecy, what is Bethlehem? He says it here. No means least among the leaders of Judah. It's a small place, about five miles south, southeast of Jerusalem. It's small. If David wasn't born there and Jesus wasn't born there, we'd know, no one would ever know of it. Go to 2.15, the next one. This was to, so Jesus, uh, once Joseph is warned, you got a lot, uh, Joseph, <laughs> Joseph, um, the stepfather of Jesus gets four, I think it's four, visions, dreams, where an angel shows up and says, Joseph, do this, Joseph, go here, Joseph, go there. And Joseph does it just immediately. He's a righteous man. He does it. But can you imagine being Joseph by the time, like the third dream, and you're be like, "Oh, hi, hey, angel, you're back. What do you want now?" Like it almost become uh, second nature here. So this was to fulfill, what was spoken by the Lord. Uh, they told uh, Joseph to get Mary and the child out of out of dodge, so to speak, to protect him from the tyrant, which is exactly analogous to. Uh, Israel being protected by God, his son. Israel is called his son in Exodus 4. And God protected Israel from Pharaoh who wanted to kill them. And here we have another tyrant, Herod, who wants to kill the son of God. And he's protected. And so, verse 15, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, uh, which is Hosea. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, out of Egypt I called my son is a reference from Hosea of hundreds of years after the Exodus. It's a reference to the Exodus. This is not a prophecy, so to speak. It's a fact. God called Israel out of Egypt. That's what Hosea is referencing. And in the midst of Israel, you're adulterous and you're going to be destroyed which is Hosea's message. Same with Isaiah's message. Hosea's message, the one we just read, out of Bethlehem will come a prince, is Micah. And Micah, same thing, same message. You are adulterous, idol-worshiping, not following me, unfaithful people, and I'm going to destroy you. And in the midst of that, I'm going to destroy you, because you deserve it. It's a message of hope, Is this gleam of hope. And this hope is, out of Bethlehem's going to come a shepherd. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So this is freedom from slavery. And then, verse 16, that when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew, sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. This is the one time that Matthew actually references the prophet. Jeremiah 31, 15. We'll go there in a second. And a voice was heard in Ramah. Now, Ramah was the staging area by which the cattle cars were loaded with the children. Okay? So this is, they didn't t- they took them from Jerusalem and gathered them in a certain place, this place Ramah. And from there, they shipped them off to Babylon. And you, are, and here, the voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. So think of the weeping in the mourning of the mothers, the fathers, the ch- everybody. You know, there's a lot of guilty people in Israel, but not all of them are guilty. Some of these people are quite innocent, and they're going... Some of them are being murdered right in front of you. They're all being taken away. You're never going to see them again. It's horrid. Rachel weeping for her children. Rachel represents all the mothers in Israel, and she refused to be comforted. Wouldn't you? Because they were no more. Now a child born, a virgin will be with child, is a ray of hope. A shepherd born in Bethlehem, a ray of hope. Out of Egypt I call my son. That's freedom from slavery. That's a ray of hope. This has no hope. They were no more, period. Where's the hope? We'll see it. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. And Joseph said, Hi, angel. Nice to see you back again. Get up, take a child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. Herod dies an awful death, by the way. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, this is one of the sons of Herod. He's just as awful as Herod was. Uh, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, that's another dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in the city of Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken of, spoken through the prophets. Notice it's plural. That's the way, it, just as it is in the Greek, it's plural. Prophet toy. And uh, we have no idea where Matthew's plucking this from. Not a clue. No idea. He shall be called a Nazarene. You can search all, you can read the Bible cover to cover and look for that phrase. You ain't going to find it other than here. So, where is he getting it from? Well, first and foremost, this is the fifth prophecy. It's the last one. And this is where Jesus grew up. Nazareth. And Nazareth, it's, you know, uh, Matthew will call it a city. He does call it a city. Eh, That's flattering. It's not. <coughs> and in fact, Jesus would be, as we know, as prophesied, we see it in the gospel, derided, mocked, despised, forsaken. And we hear uh, in John chapter 1, when Nathaniel is told by um, Andrew, Andrew, they found the Lord. They said, well, they went to the, he went to his friend Nathaniel and said, look, we found the Messiah. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel's first response was, would anything good come out of Nazareth? In other words, and this is the only hint we have of it, that Nazareth is actually not a place to be like, hey, I'm from, you know, no one's going to be impressed. But think about it. What city in the world? You say, I'm from there. I uh, I got to talk to my family at Thanksgiving, and my nephew and niece through my brother Sean, you know, last time I saw them, they were pre-high school, these, these little kids. And they told me they're living in New York City. They live in the city. I was like, "Oh, you poor kids!" You know, I'm thinking it's full of migrants and you know all kinds of crime. But no, they said it's wonderful and they love it. They're all grown up. They're living in the city. They're responsible adults. Yeah. I live in New York City. Wow, you know that's. But isn't is that impressive? From where could you say you come from that people would be impressed? I mean, I'm sure some people might be impressed. But for us as believers, we compare it all to this one city, the new Jerusalem, and nothing here. So where am I from? In other words, and this now we come to this last prophecy, this ends the chapter. And this speaks of our present. You know, where do you presently live? And isn't it true that where you presently live, there's some mundane... I don't care how much stuff you have or how nice your house is, but there's a certain mundaneness to it. No matter how nice the house is, you still got to clean it. No matter how nice the bathroom is, the toilets are toilets. No matter how rich we are, we are full of that stuff. You know, it's like, where, where do you go that you are in the city of cities? In your current life, you're surrounded by sinners. You're surrounded by those who don't love God. You're surrounded by those who don't care about goodness or mercy or love. Uh, they're all over. You're fortunate if you have people that believe and know and are mature in Christianity in your life, but there are never many of them. And you live in the midst of it. So we have here, in the context of each of these, is hope in the midst of a prophetic book. Now, in all of these prophetic books, Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, Jeremiah, and wherever this, he is from Nazareth, comes from. He'll it, be called a Nazarene We. We liken it to come from probably Isaiah and other prophets, because he says, of the prophets, it's plural. But in all of these prophetic books, if you have taken the time to read them, you'll say, well, this is awfully repetitive. And it is, because each prophet is giving the same message to Israel, which, by the way, as we'll see, is a message to you and to me. Because Israel is a picture of every human life. God has made it this way. I've never seen this so clearly. That God elected this people, elected Abraham, and he's and really, what God has done many things besides you know provide the word, world a savior. That's the most important thing. But Abraham and your family, I'm going to make you a poster child of the human race, and from you and what you experience in your history and what you go through is going to be. A clear metaphor for every single person who lives their lives out on planet Earth. Every one of us. Not just Jews, Gentiles as well. Not just believers, unbelievers as well. So don't throw out your Old Testament just yet. You need it. Israel is adulterous and about to be destroyed, but a virgin will be with child. But a shepherd will come from Bethlehem. But... I called my son out of Egypt, but Rachel's weeping for her lost children who go to Babylon and they ain't coming back. That's no hope. We'll see that it is. And possibly the last one, the Nazarene, is this is in Isaiah 52, 2 and 3, and other many other passages, Psalm 69, Psalm 22, others... He's mocked, he's ridiculed, he's derided, he's forsaken, he's hated because Nazareth is no place to say you're from. That's like saying, well, you guys don't know Newark very well probably if you're not from the East Coast. But Newark was like the place that, you know, you went out of your way to drive around it. You know, it's, this is not a good place to be from. But yet, the Messiah, the king of the world, the creator of the earth, does not grow up in Rome, does not grow up in a palace, but grows up with a poor family in a nowhere-backward town. That's done on purpose. He's not. God's not saying, you know, the best place to be is the nowhere-backward town, Basically, what God is saying is all your cities are nowhere and backward compared to my city, compared to my heaven, and my. And I'm going to prove that through the one that I send to show what life really is. Because when it comes to Israel being what they are, they fail, right? So, People have become, even in the church, throughout church history, people have become anti-Semitic because Israel, and this would went on for hundreds of years, Israel killed the Messiah. And so we need to deride and, if possible, kill, you know, there's inquisitions, right? You've heard of these, several of them. Get rid of the Jews, they killed the Christ. What they fail to understand is that the Jews represent everybody. God called Abraham, made him an Israelite through circumcision, made him his own. It's really Israel is Abraham's family. But there, there's nothing in them that is any different from any other family. All right, maybe you got together with your family at Thanksgiving this, this year. I was with mine, all three of us. And, uh, you know, there's good and bad. <laughs> I'm just kidding. There's only three of us, so I can't say that. But, you know, <clears throat> we all become brats at one point, and, you know, at some point or whatever. But, um, you know, your family has good and bad, virtuous, non virtuous, moral, immoral, smart, dumb. They're all there. If your family's big enough, you have a nice sampling of it all. It's no different. Israel's no different. And Israel failed. But let's uh, go to Jeremiah 31. Let's see the hope in this, this fourth one. And this is leading us to see that Israel is a picture of every person's life. And yet Israel failed. So we say we're all failures, and indeed we are. Um, But then when Jesus comes, Jesus fulfills, Jesus becomes Israel. Jesus replays the history of Israel. Okay, so these passages, these things that Matthew, these passages that Matthew was plucking out of the prophets through the inspiration of the Spirit, they're historical facts. Out of Egypt I called my son. That's not a prophecy. It's a fact. In, in Bethlehem would be born a shepherd. It's a fact. And he was. But It's more of a prophecy. Um, and, and, uh, and, and so the, uh, and out of uh, this one and this one here, look at Jeremiah 31, 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, amazingly, this passage, now Matthew would want his readers, you know, he's writing to Jews, so they perhaps know that Jeremiah chapters 30 through 33 are four chapters of hope. And this little passage right here is a reminder of no hope. Four chapters of hope. And so, Jeremiah from 1 to 29 is you're an adulterous and about to be destroyed people. And it's your fault. And it goes on and on and on like that for in various ways. <clears throat> Almost ad nauseum. And then chapter 30 is a big change. And in chapter 30 through 33 and 31, we have the new covenant, which comes up after this. But in the midst of this four chapters of hope, God goes back and he writes this in verse 15. Do you remember when in Ramah, the mothers who watched all their children being taken away by Babylonians who killed and murdered them and raped them and and just tore your families apart and you never saw them again. Do you remember that? Anybody reading Jeremiah would. And, and the Jews in reading Matthew would. would be like, thanks Matthew. Thanks for the memories. But notice the next line. Because this is in chapter of hope. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord... In verse 16, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. They're coming back. Now, why are they going into captivity? Is it their fault? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's because of their idol worship. It's because of their sin. They were warned and warned and warned and warned and warned. Jeremiah himself, as he says at the front of this chapter, says that I've warned you for 23 years. Can you imagine Jeremiah's job? 23 years of telling this people that you are going to be destroyed if you don't change your ways. And they're like, yeah, whatever. They don't care. And they keep doing it. They keep doing it. You know, that sounds like me. That sounds like you. I don't have to know your life to know that it sounds like you. And it sounds like me. We want to turn to these pages and say, ah, oh, Israel, what a bunch of bums. And yet we have to take that accusing finger and point it here. And to varying degrees, yeah, I, I get it. Some have more sin in their past than others. Some have more overt, heinous type sins. But we all have them, whether we've hid them, uh, whether whatever. We have them. We have them. None of us have lived up to the expectations of righteousness. Not one. I know this for a fact from the scripture. I know it from a fact from knowing people, most of all knowing myself. <clears throat> so there's hope here, right? They're coming back. But Matthew brings up a terrible memory. And I wonder, I'd be like, Matthew, why didn't you include verse 16 in your prophecy? And you're writing this. You know, add a little ray of sunshine here. But no, he just does 15 just does remember what happened to you. Israel, the elect son, becomes a metaphor for every human life. And we'll see how this happens. What do we see here in these five prophecies? We have birth, we have slavery, we have captivity because of sin, and we have living in Nazareth, present life. This is true of all human beings. All human beings were born. You're welcome for that incredibly insightful revelation from Pastor Joe. All of us are born, but all of us are born sinners. <coughs> we have DNA that limits us. Some of us are smarter than others. Some of us are bolder. and I don't know. If you ever worked with kids... I was a high school teacher for a lot of years. Ken, you were a teacher for a lot of years. They're just, kids are different, right? You know, some of them are born, and it's just easier for them. They're born with better dispositions, better, they just have better brains. But, you know, even that, you know, everybody's limited, though. We're all very limited. Some of us are born with strengths that, Cause pride in us, which uh, give us more embarrassing memories, because generally our pride will be found out, and you will boast about something that you shouldn't have, and you're found out, and you're embarrassed, but anyway, there's birth, but then there's slavery, and slavery is, you know, Israel were slaves. Was it their fault they were slaves? In fact, it was not. Israel went to Egypt to get away from the famine, to find food. This was Jacob's salvation. Jacob and his family, their deliverance. <coughs> and in that deliverance, they remained. They prospered. Joseph was the prime minister of Egypt. They prospered. And over the over time, they became slaves. All of us have been slaves. To something to someone. It could be a physical condition. It could be an abusive parent. It could be uh, just my own limitations. I, I, I wish I could be better and smarter and prettier and handsomer and taller and whatever. I wish, I, I wish, I wish. And you wish all day you ain't going to get it. You're a slave in that body. What about sin and being carried off to captivity? Who of us have not turned from the Lord and gone away into captivity, into some worldly fleshliness? We've all done it. And what about our present city that we live in? He'll be called a Nazarene. Now I'm called a Dallasite, I guess. An Oregonian. yeah. I said Oregonian for the first few years I was here. You know, what what is that? Well look around, right? Is it is it streets paved with gold? People want to build a homeless encampment in, in, in Dallas now. Ah, yeah, sure. Bring it all in. Bring them all in, right? <laughs> Whatever. They want to put it right next to the high school. Brilliant. Brilliant. The people who want to put it there don't live there, by the way, of course. What about, you know, what about it? Where's your city? But that's your current life and around you. Isn't it so easy that I can get just filled with the mundaneness, the grayness, the drabbiness of my present life? The work I got to do, the, all of it, the kids, the everything. That's why the history of Israel is a metaphor for life. And then Jesus, now, because those prophecies are historical. Jesus went to Egypt and came out. You know, that's done on purpose. Why? Because Israel went to Egypt and came out. Jesus is reliving the history of Israel. Now, note that, and hold on to that thought. Jesus is reliving the history of of Israel, except with Him, sinlessly, perfectly obeying the Father, perfectly pleasing the Father, doing all that the Father wanted. He's the one and only to do it. So out of Bethlehem, right out of out of this um, <clears throat> this reference to the captivity for when jesus escapes to egypt this prompts this terrible angry paranoid tyrant king herod to want to kill all the children in bethlehem just in the the slim chance that he could get rid of the threat of a baby king talk about paranoid if you learn about his life this man who started out in the place of privilege. His father was a governor. And so he was born rich. He was born privileged. And he was smart. He was born with assets, meaning in his brain. He was smart. He could play politics very well. He was excellent on the battlefield as well. He was physically strong and smart. And he was able to work his way. It's a lot of hard work to get to be king of Judah. He had to play the Romans. He had to play uh, Mark Antony against Augustus. and There was all sorts of stuff. Cleopatra was in his life. All of this intrigue. I mean, it's Game of Thrones, and he played it beautiful. He was smart, and he got his throne, and he had ten wives, right? What are you thinking, ten wives? Ten wives. They all want their sons to be his heir. They're all bothering him. This is Abraham, Like right? In his tent. We have Herod has ten wives. All of them want their kids to be his heir. And they're driving him crazy. So he murders a few sons and murders a few wives. That's how he dealt with the issue. There's no divorce court. He just axed them. So Jesus plays this out. This Jesus and this so therefore this becomes a part of mankind. So we turn to anthropology here. Uh, and anthropology, you know, what is mankind? We're birth, we're slavery, we're sin, and we live presently. I'm leaving the future out for now because Matthew doesn't get to eschatology just yet, but he will. But if we (coughs) stop it here at the future, uh, sorry, at the present, this is true of all, of all mankind. We have a beginning, we're born in slavery, we're enslaved. All of us have been abused at some point, to some extent, some to a terrible extent. And when those memories crop up in your head, they are hard to deal with. All of us have sinned to some extent, and therefore we have gone to Babylon. We have all been captive, and yet we have been set free by our Lord, right? So, but those memories come up, and then there's our present life. And I think our present life is something that is often overlooked theologically. We're often talking about the past and often about the future, but what about, when I talk about this, I'm talking about today. What are you doing Today. Do you have joy today? Or, do your eyes only see that, which is mundane and trifling and of no expectation or hope? This actually turns to a chiastic structure or chiastic structure. We have an insignificant city, which is Bethlehem. And so we're all born into it. And then the last part is another insignificant city, which is Nazareth. And in the middle, we have two dark paths. The dark past of slavery, which is (coughs) out of Egypt, and the dark past of sin, which is Babylon. And one of them is not your fault, and the other one is your fault. You know, if someone abused you as a child, that's not your fault. And all of us were some you know, there's someone who didn't love you as you should have been, as you expected to be. All of us have had it. Some to in varying degrees. The degrees there vary quite a bit. But the same is true with sin. Some of it's not our fault, some of it is our fault. But this all ties to the fact that those five prophecies And you know, when you look at these first two chapters of Matthew, you don't really see it's not about his birth, is it? He hasn't even talked about him being born. It's not about his infancy. We don't know anything about that. It's about his origin. It's about him fulfilling that which Israel was. And in his origin, that's what he does. As a child, he's fulfilling. Coming out of Egypt. As a child, he's fulfilling because going to Egypt, the evil Herod uh, murders the children. And this is much like Israel being taken away to Babylon. That's why Matthew references it. So, we are born. We have the past to deal with. And we have the present to deal with. When we're saved then our eyes are opened. And this is soteriology. Soteriology, it's just from the Greek word soter, which means salvation. And in being saved, our insignificant city, wherever we were born, whatever limitations we were born with, um, all of it, everything that is around our, our origin, which is nothing spectacular for anybody, and now we're born again. Our dark past of slavery, which all of us have had, but now we are set free. We have liberty. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, Second Corinthians 3. Christ has set us free, Galatians 5.1. We are free, no longer slaves. Our dark past of sin is forgiven. There's your redemption. By the blood of Christ, we are forgiven of all sin and made righteous. So we are righteous. in our insignificant city, well, John 14, 23 says, which meaning our current life, no matter where you're living or what you're doing, is if you obey the Lord, if you love the Lord and keep his commandments, he said, I and my Father will build our house with you. And that doesn't matter where you are. And so all of this has changed. The, this narrative of every human life through Christ has changed. If we look at Israel which is the picture of all mankind we see failure where we see Christ reliving the history of Israel we see success and through his sacrifice on the cross he by grace now we don't work for any of this by grace he puts us in his kingdom transferred Colossians 1:13 it's 111 113 I think it's 113 transferred from the domain of darkness and set in the kingdom of his beloved son, transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son by grace, because you believe in Christ as your Savior. Now, whether your eyes are open to this or not, of course, is up to you. But all of us have this to be true. But when it comes to unsaved humanity, well, this is not true. In the unsaved humanity, which we use Herod as an example, uh, it's just total depravity, and that's the doctrine. Also, a doctrine of anthropology, which is the total depravity of man. Every single human being is born totally depraved, enemy of God, separated from God, born in sin, and so none of no one, outside of being regenerated, born again, and made new, is ever going to see anything other than their origin in sin. Their slavery of their past, the sinfulness of their past, and their present drab, dreary accommodations. Now, how the unbeliever tries to deal with that is the way that Herod tried to deal with that. So, as you see, I'm using the same chiasm here. Herod was born in an insignificant city, Idumea. I'm sure you. Wouldn't know where that is, and it's a nowhere place, but his father was the governor of Idumea. His father had power. So Herod, yeah, was born, but born in privilege. His dark past of slavery, but actually Herod had tons of opportunities. So when you say, you know, to an unbeliever would say, well, are you born in slavery or have you gone through slavery? And they'd say, Absolutely not. I, you know, I have opportunities. I have freedom to 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 do what I want to do. But all long for this life, whether it's you have it or you don't, everybody's longing for it. To be born in privilege, to have opportunities. Herod was brought up in a home that had no no moral law. So was anybody pointing to him and saying, you know, stop that. Stop that. That's wrong. It was none of that. None of that. He'd do what he liked. All that mattered was power and wealth. That's all that mattered. And then his present well he built he built for himself and it took a lot of work to get to the place where he was but he built for himself an enormous palace in jerusalem and so he's surrounded by riches servants everything's given to him handed to him but he marries 10 women right his he could say he has all the opportunities he has no one condemning him for what he does like he gives the order to murder the children in Bethlehem, and it's carried out. Who's condemning him for that? He remains king afterwards. He's not deposed or fired. He, he continues. And, and, and unbelievers in this world would say, you know, they're not kings. But wouldn't they love this? Aren't they really, in a way, seeking for it? to change my birth, to change my past, and to actually say, you know, is sin my issue? People don't admit to that. You know, what is the problem with the human race is sin. And no one's going to see that. No one cares for that. But you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you're made new. And so, because, for instance, just take the sin issue, because you've been made righteous... The Holy Spirit within you convicts you of sin. Right? You can feel it. Right? <laughs> he convicts you of sin as much as you try at times. I, you know, I, as much as you fight him. I, I tried. I, I did. I fought God on certain areas of sin. Believe me, He wins. The easier you give in, the better. But um, you know that there's a reason why you you could never take credit for the fact that you didn't want to do that. Because it's the Holy Spirit that is your new creature. Your brand new birth. Brand new. This is a completely new life for you. But I look around and I say, My present I'm still in the insignificant city. My flesh hasn't changed, <clears throat> but in fact you have completely changed. And the Lord Jesus did this for you. And then the Lord Jesus through his servant the apostle Paul says leave the old behind leave it behind So go to Philippians 3 Hang <coughs> it Look at Philippians 3:12 As I said in um, when it comes to Jeremiah, this this last one here, not the last one, but this one, the one that we just read, Jeremiah thirty one fifteen, that Matthew brings up <coughs> in reference to the children that Herod has murdered. This is a terrible memory, and God purposely brings it up. Now, many of us are familiar with this passage. It's quoted in this context quite a bit. In 3.12, Paul writes, "...not that I have already obtained it." And he's here talking about a life of, of resurrection glory now in time. "...not that I have already obtained it or have already become mature." Not perfect, but mature. "...but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus." This press on word, the dioko is the Greek word. It means to lust for, to reach for. He says, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So he says, I forget what lies behind. So what we've been talking about so far this morning is Through these prophecies that are in Matthew 1 and 2, these five prophecies, we see birth, we see slavery, we see sin brought to captivity, and we see the current life, which for him was growing up in Nazareth. And we see this in terms of everybody's life. And in Israel, these historical, God called Israel, so they had a birth, Uh, they were in slavery, they went to captivity because of terrible sin against the law, and they, have a, they had a current life, and they actually still do have a current life. <clears throat> um, they failed at it terribly, just like every member of the human race does. And then we become born again and saved, and our birth becomes new. It's changed. Our slavery gets turned to freedom. Our sin gets completely forgiven. And our current circumstance can very well be living in a house that's created by the Father and the Son. Right? That's our life. No matter where that house is, it doesn't matter where it is. We talk about this quite a bit here. And here we see in the first two chapters of Gospel of Matthew that this is yet brought up again by God. I sent my Son to give you a life. The old life in many ways, tries to destroy the new. Uh, It can't be taken from you. You can't lose your salvation. You can't lose your position in Christ. You will be conformed to the image of Christ. You're predestined to it, Romans 3. I'm sorry, Romans 8, 830. Um, and, And so, you know, this is your life, whether you like it or not. But the old life, the earth wants to invade heaven, Good luck with that. It's not going to work, but it tries. The flesh tries to invade the spirit. Now I mean they try. They set up battle lines against your soul. The flesh does. The world does. Your past does. So there's many ways in which the enemy, whether it's Satan, the flesh of the world, try to invade your soul as a believer and make you think. That you're not what you are. To make you believe. Something else other than the truth. To make you pursue. Something else. Other than the will of God. In your life. And there's there's many ways that they do this. And because God brings up this. Rachel weeping over her children. Which is a memory. I thought to pick on that. As we close. And that is. The memory, as I've talked to many people about this, they have all agreed with me that their past, no matter what it may be, like that little story I opened up with in the beginning, memories pop up like I don't even know why they do. could be anything, and they're memories of a past, a failure, an abuse that you received, which wasn't your fault. Someone was supposed to love you. They didn't. Someone was to care for you, and they abused you. Or they ridiculed you. Whatever. And those things caused us to be insecure, or whatever. And and from that, we made other bad decisions. on and on it went. Bad decision after bad decision from a weak heart. And they come now and try to define you. So, as Paul here says... Forget what lies behind. Can we forget the past? Can you forget the past? Um, In in chapter three of Philippians, in this context, Paul writes about his past. He said, "I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I abused. I, I, uh, um, as a zealot, I uh, persecuted the church." And he says, all those things that I used to count valuable, I now count them as refuse. I, was, I have to always think a pastor, Bob, would always say scubalar when he'd say that word. Uh, Scubala, whatever, yeah. Right? It means human refuse. That's the toilet. You could have a golden toilet. Still got to clean it. This is the world we're in. And Paul, Paul brings up his past. But this word, epilinthanomai, this Greek word not only means to forget. There's a passage and you know, when the, if you remember this, the disciples got into the boat with Jesus after he fed the 5,000 and they forgot to bring bread. And they were like, ooh, we forgot to bring bread. Jesus gave them a verbal slap for that lack of faith. Um, so it can't, that's that word, same word. It can mean to forget, but it also can mean neglect. In Hebrews 13, 16, it's, uh, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, don't neglect doing good. He uses that same word. Neglect is better here, in my opinion, because Paul is not forgetting his past. I would say he finds that very hard to do. Think about the times that he thought of all the, when he killed Christians, persecuted the church, Put children in prison and separated them from their parents. And now as a believer, the believer, God's apostle, he's not forgetting them. What he's doing is neglecting his past pursuits. So when the memory of what you were born in, Paul, the memory of what you were a slave to, Paul, he was a slave to legalism, he was brought up in it the memory of the sins you committed, like murdering Christians, Paul. He throws, as, as uh, First Peter says, casting all your cares, your anxieties upon the Lord because He cares for you. You're not forgetting the past. Is that when it comes and it seeks to rob you of your present life, tell it where to go. Go on the shoulders of my Lord. I am no longer this person. And also, embrace... What has actually happened? You were a slave. So is Israel. Don't they celebrate the Passover? Do you when your memories of slavery come up, the memory of the abuse that you received? Do you actually embrace the celebration of being set free, and now you are liberated? You are no longer a slave to whoever that was. When your sins come up. Israel, yeah, they went to captivity, but they came back. That's the prodigal son. The prodigal son went into captivity by his own choice, and he came back. Haven't you come back? If you have, when the memories of sin come up and they want to define you, say, ah, no way, I've come back from that land, that faraway land, I've come back. No, thank you. And why can I say this? Because my Lord has made me new. My Lord Israel couldn't do it. Nobody could do it. But my Lord lived out the history of Israel and he did it without one failure. And he has handed that life to me. Handed it. He didn't say, no, I want to see if you can do it. He gave it to us. That blows my mind. Because that means that I have it. And, you know, the, the mercy of God and the grace of God, right? James says, if you draw near to the Lord, he'll draw near to you. And isn't it, in, in, i just using myself as an example. There were a time where I would say, you know what? I could draw near to the Lord. But if you're that close to the Lord, right, you're in surrounded by holiness. And if you're going to be close to the Lord... In the sphere of light and holiness, what do you have to do? Right? You are you have to be holy, don't you? If you're going to be that close, you've got to be like him. So I'd rather stay kind of far away and be like, Lord, I see you, but I'm going to stay over here and do my thing because to get close to you means that I've got to leave my thing behind and I don't want to do that. And they, all of us do this, I think, to some extent. And, he's, and it's not, he's not saying, work to get close to me. He's saying, I've made you close to me. Come close. And leave that all behind. So, our birth, our slavery, where, where are we here? There. Your birth, your slavery, your sin your present all here fulfilled by the lord in Matthew 1 and 2 and therefore his life now the one the prophecy we didn't really speak about today was the virgin birth and now that finally as we one minute we can wrap this all up with a nice bow and say that this lord who gave us this life is not from earth he wasn't born in the same manner that we are he's not from here he came from heaven. I'm the bread of life who comes from heaven. Anyone who eats of this bread will never hunger again. He, born of a virgin, is the Son of God. And now, as a man, he has given us our past, present, and all what we are. So we're defined in him. So, Carnal themes always say Israel's is a picture of the believer's soul, right? Israel is absolutely a picture of your soul, and Christ is the one who fulfilled the history of Israel. He relived the history of Israel and fulfilled it perfectly, and then he handed you this life. So now we're redefined. Your birth, your past, your present, despite the badness that has stained all of it, is now all completely redefined in him. And so you can see why. that We're told over and over again to put our eyes on Christ. Because as soon as you get your eyes on you and your past and what that person said and those people said and how they defined you and what they did to you, there goes your definition of yourself, goes right back to the old, gray, sinful, dreary, drab who you are. Were. But you're not that anymore. Christ came into the world to set us free. So why not just get rid of all the problems? If Christ is going to set us free, why not just erase our memories? How about that? Why not do that? Just erase your memory. When God told Israel to take the promised land, was it empty? Does the promised land have no people in it? It was full of people who did not want to give up They didn't say, oh, Israel, God's people, sure, come on in. We're packing our bags right now. We're on our way out. No, they had to fight for it. It's God's decree, God's design, right? When that ship is at sea and that poor and that storm and that light, and the storm comes, the light is precious because of the storm. Right? The rest is precious because of the fight. When I get to rest and I'm at peace, it's when I, when that comes from fighting. It's precious. God has enabled us, decreed for us to fight this good fight and to grab hold of what we are in Christ. He is your origin, He is your past, He is your present, and He is your future. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that you and you alone have given us our Lord as our Savior, the, the way of our life, the means of our life. He defines us. May we see ourselves, Father, in the mirror of the word of God and be defined by what you say. And through our precious Lord and Savior who has come into this world as your your son, your one who fulfilled what you have purposed for Israel and have fulfilled what each of our hearts desires. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. All right, we'll take our offering and get you out of here. Sorry for going a little late. Thank you, Grant. We pray for our offering. We thank you, Father, for your uh, opportunity that we have here to give. We give as your believer-priest we worship you as we give, Father, and we know this. So we thank you the opportunity, and we ask that you bless this offering to your glory. We ask in Christ's name, amen. amen. Don't forget we're having a Bible study on Wednesday after class at about four thirty. So even you won't be late if you if you can't make it for four thirty, come on, if you can make it, make it, we'll be uh, we'll be here. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, Father, for our opportunity to be together and to worship you, all of us together, hearing your word and reading your word. We're so very grateful for all you are and what you have done for us through Christ our Lord. Anyone listening who has not come to believe in Christ as their Savior, I would beg you to please pause and consider who is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. He's the Son of God, has become a man. He became a man to come into this world to save you. If you were the only one who saving, he would have come for you. And he did. He came and died for the sins of the whole world. Only in him is the sins or are the sins of the world paid for by his sacrifice. He has done so for you. If you believe upon Him, you will be saved. You just have to accept it. God doesn't ask you to work for it. He asks you to believe in Him. God has given you a choice. And the choice is either believe in Christ or reject Him. If you believe in Him, you will be saved. Thank you again, Father, for Your Word and for all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.